a journey that we all need to take, a journey of spiritual growth, of spiritual direction, a journey that I've termed out in the wilderness because I look at these weeks as a time to go out into the wilderness and draw closer to God in preparation for the beauty and the splendor of a resurrection Sunday morning. But it's a journey every step of the way. A journey where we go forth, stretching our spiritual muscles and learning and growing stronger with each step. And we need to, know how, need to have knowledge. We need to know what we are doing and why we are doing it and what to do when we overcome some of the obstacles that we most assuredly will face. So we want to use these sermons as a time of growth. Today is a time of a knowledge, of knowing, of understanding how to overcome some of the spiritual pitfalls that each and every one of us face. I hope that you will join us on this journey. I hope that each and every Sunday will be a special time in which you can learn and in which you can grow, that you might leave this place different than when you came in that you might be changed for the glory and the splendor of the living Lord. I want us to go to the Gospel of Luke today, join together and see what the physician has to tell us. And I wonder if you would stand at the reading of this Gospel as we go to the fourth chapter and the first verse And I will also add the 13th verse this day, but this is what Luke writes. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Several years ago, there was a 2020 episode on TV. They were doing some psychological uh, uh, testing, and they were using different circumstances. But they, they took a group of children about four years of age, 
and uh, faced them with that ancient scourge of temptation because they put them in a room and they sat them in front of a table and there were like three or four M&Ms on the table. And they told the kids, if you don't eat these M&Ms, if you just hold off until the bell rings, we'll give you a whole bag of M&Ms. Well, needless to say, it was delightful to watch through the two-way mirror all these kids fidgeting and twisting and turning and hiding their eyes and trying to do everything they could not to reach out to touch one of those M&Ms. And at the end of the show, it was about a 50-50 split. You know, about 50% of them were able to not be tempted, not to eat the M&Ms. And the other 50% said, well, to the heck with it. I want, it. I want what I want, so I'm eating the M&Ms. You know, there was even one little child who just ate one, hoping that they had miscounted and they wouldn't know whether they put three or four on the table. Isn't that like us? Isn't that like us? Now, the result is kind of hilarious, but we all know we struggle, don't we? Now, it may, be, it may not be M&Ms, but we certainly have our weaknesses. We certainly have our temptations. And even Je- Jesus, as we know, has struggled with the tempter. Our lesson from the Gospel of Luke today tells the story that right after Jesus' baptism, he's led into the wilderness. Now, one of the most significant things about that is I think when we are really close to God, when we feel everything is going right, you know, all is right with the world, God is in his heaven, that's when the devil really works the hardest. That's when the devil really wants to get you. That's when the devil will apply everything he possibly can. When you feel closer to God than anything else, that's when the devil is really going to respond. And Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. The devil didn't lead him out there. The Holy Spirit led him out there there to the wilderness. And I can only look at that as that this is a test. This is a test to prove that Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God, that he will not succumb. The idea that Jesus is going to be tested the same way we test so many other things. You know, like when they drive those cars into walls, you know, boom. That's not to test the fact that cars will indeed crash. We know that. It's to test that the airbags are going to deploy so that those dummies in the front seat got something to pop off of. It's to prove that they'll be all right. There's a story about when the Union Pacific was built. The designer of uh, part of the railway had to go over a deep chasm, a deep gorge in Colorado. And he designed it, and they built it. But, you know, as anything, there was always that fear that, you know, that's that's like a 1,000 feet down there. I'm not going out there. I'm not riding a train across that. So the designer decided he would double load the train twice over its maximum. He would put more cars and more cargo on the train. He rolled it out into the middle of this bridge over this thousand-foot gorge, and he left it there all day long. One of the workers on the railroad, while they were leaving it out there watching the train, turned to him and said, what in the world are you doing? Are you trying to break the bridge? And the designer said, nope, exactly the opposite. I'm trying to prove to you that the bridge will not break, that the bridge will not be broken. So my question to you today was Jesus' trip out into the wilderness, a test, a test that he too would not be broken. 
You know, sometimes we ask, why in the world did God create temptation? Why would he place temptation in the midst of his creation? And I'd like to tell you today that I really seriously wonder whether temptation is not God's quality control for his creation. The men and women, his sons and daughters. William Barclay, the world-renowned theologian, explained it this way, and it's beautiful. What we call temptation is not meant to make us sin. It is supposed to enable us to conquer sin. It is not meant to make us bad. It is meant to make us good. It is not meant to weaken us. Quite the opposite. It is meant to make us emerge stronger and finer and purer for the task at hand. Temptation is not a penalty for being a human being. Temptation is the glory of being a human being. It is a test which comes to those whom God truly wishes to use. It is a test. In other words, the temptations of Jesus Christ in the wilderness weren't designed to see if Jesus would sin. They were designed to prove that he would not. That he would not. And in this test, the Holy Spirit is showing that us Jesus, fully human, fully divine, will resist temptation. And thereby, he is our example. The first temptation we have, and we read there in the gospel, is that Jesus hasn't eaten anything. It's his physical needs that we're addressing. He was out there 40 days. Now, I don't want you to get caught up in 40 days. Some people get caught up in the nitnoids and say, well, nobody could live in the desert for 40 days without food. Absolutely nobody. Let's put it this way. Figuratively or literally speaking in the Bible, what they're trying to say is Jesus was out there a very, very, very long time, and he had absolutely nothing to eat. Nothing. And when he was the weakest, when his physical needs were the greatest, ah, here comes the devil. Here comes Satan. Jesus is extremely hungry, and Satan's saying, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread, which Christ certainly could have done. He had physical needs just like we do. And Jesus responds to the devil out of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live on bread alone. You've heard that before. In other words, he's saying that there are things that are more important in life than our physical needs. Sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we may not, may not even believe that. But there are more important things in our life than simply our physical needs. He is quoting a passage from Deuteronomy, when Moses is reminding the people of Israel that God is the one that has led you out of the wilderness for 40 years. You have been humble. You have been tested. Then we're out there. They didn't have anything to eat either, did they? And what did God provide for them? We should have interactive sermons. We really should. Manna. Manna from heaven. He gave it to them. Each and every day. This is a test. If they don't trust God, then they are going to start to collect manna. Isn't that just like us? I'm going to eat a whole bunch of manna, and then I'm going to put a few in my pocket. I might be hungry later on. I'm going to need a midnight snack. And what happened to the manna? It turned to maggots. God is saying, trust me. I'll provide for you. 
Just trust me. We're faced with the same dilemma, aren't we? When things happen in our life, do we really trust God or do we simply give it lip service? Because our response determines and defines who we are as Christians. Do we really trust God or are we just saying, I trust God? When we have those kind of physical needs, God's going to provide. But sometimes we have a difficult time, and Jesus, through the resistance of this temptation, is showing us that we do not have to succumb. Your Father will provide for you. The second temptation is the seeking of power and glory. That's something we can all relate to, right? Don't all of us want to be affirmed? Don't all of us want to be lifted up? Don't all of us want to have a certain degree of power and glory. So the devil lifts Jesus up, shows him all the kingdoms. I'm going to give you all this authority and all this splendor. It's been given to me, and I'm going to give it to anybody I want to. All you have to do is what? Get down on your knees and worship me. And Jesus answers, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We're not supposed to worship Satan. We're not supposed to worship our own selfish desires. We're not supposed to worship our own self-centered plans. We are to worship God, period. And once again, Jesus is going to Deuteronomy. He's going to the Pentateuch, where Moses had warned the Israelites of this kind of attitude in the Promised Land. The temptation for them was going to be, once they crossed over the Jordan, once they subdued everything, it's like sitting in your lazy boy, Drinking a glass of iced tea and going, this is pretty doggone good. I did really good for myself, didn't I? You forget who brought you there. You forget who it was that brought you through all of that. It wasn't you. How many of us sometimes think, hey, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job. This is all about me. Who do you think gave you the talents? Who do you think gave you the skills? Who do you think directed your path? Well, let me start by saying it wasn't you. It's God. And that's what Moses wanted to remind the Israelites. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall worship God only, and only Him shall you serve. Don't we have trouble with that sometimes? Making God the focal point, making God preeminent in our lives. Aren't there so many other things that we are involved with. Ours are not gods of clay and stone. They're gods of power and money and pride and position. We have obsessions sometimes, and we let them get the best of us. Maybe it's a hobby or a sport. Maybe you get so involved with a hobby or a sport that it, it becomes your god. Maybe you're so involved right now with March Madness that you're not here in the worship service. You're getting ready to watch whoever plays today. Sometimes we even use our families as idols. We say, well, I can't go to church today because I need some quality family time at the lake or in the mountains or in the golf course. We have idols, folks. We have things that take our attention away from God and the preeminence that he should have in our lives. We live in a time of easy rationalizations, folks. You see that all the time. So often God becomes watered down. So often worship in church becomes a tertiary or fourth or fifth or sixth or tenth or twenty-fifth because I got 24 more important things to do with my life. 
And why do you think we succumb to temptation? Because if he's not the focal point, if he's not preeminent, that's exactly the problem we're going to have. So Satan's first temptation was hunger. Satan's second temptation was hunger for power and splendor. And now we come to the third one because Satan is going to offer Jesus a way out. He's going to offer a way for Jesus to complete his mission and not have to suffer and die on the cross. The devil's going to give him the crown that he wants or that he needs, and he's going to be able to sacrifice the cross. Satan takes, takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. If you have ever been or ever seen uh, mock-ups of Jerusalem and the temple, this temple on the southwest corner is extremely high, extremely high. He takes him to that pinnacle and says, Jump! For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If Jesus would throw himself off that pinnacle, he would convince everybody, just like that, that he was the Messiah. Anybody that can survive that kind of fall, ah, that's got to be him. That's Jesus Christ. That's the Messiah. Give him the crown. Don't need the cross. Give him the crown. And Jesus didn't succumb to that either. Satan even quotes Psalm 91 here. Do you know that? Jesus is good. Satan's pretty good too. That's where it prophesies about the Messiah being, being kept safe from harm. Jesus says it is written, and Satan follows up with, it is written. The devil's a fast learner, isn't it? Maybe that's another warning that we need to have in our use of Scripture That God's word can be used for evil just as well as it can be used for good, depending on how they use it and why they use it. God's word can be used for evil, depending on who uses it, how they use it, and why they use it. Satan's crafty. Satan's crafty. And evil is alive and well. But Jesus didn't yield to this easy way. He didn't yield to this temptation. He knew that his purpose was to come and to be the suffering servant. To receive the acceptance of the people without going to the cross was going to undermine God's plan, the Father's plan. That's exactly what the situation that Moses was writing about in Deuteronomy 6.16. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test the Father. Moses was referring to the people because they sometimes wondered if God was even with them. Don't we have that same problem? Don't we whether God showed up? You think God's with us today? You hear God? You betcha. But we still question. We still have doubts. We still have worries just like the chosen people. And Moses cautioned them just like Jesus cautions us. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Christ was certainly not the first and not the last to be tempted to take the shortcut. Sometimes we take the easy way out, don't we? We like to avoid all the work. Instant gratification. If we can have that, we'll take it. But Jesus did not succumb. And so Luke finishes up by saying when the devil was finished with his temptations, he left him until, note, an opportune time. An opportune time. Satan was not done with Jesus. There would be other opportunities to tempt the Son of God again and again and again. 
when Jesus turned and faced Jerusalem, knowing what lay ahead, knowing what horrific death he was about to take. Wasn't it Peter who said, in essence, you don't have to do this. Get behind me, Satan. When Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating like great drops of blood, doubting, fearful of what was going on, saying, Father, if there's any possible way, please take this cup away from me. But he didn't. And even when he hangs on the cross and the centurion looks at the dead, dying Messiah and says, if you are the Son of God, then jump down from the cross and save yourself. Scene sounds hauntingly familiar to the devil taking Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. Just jump down from the cross. Save yourself. Jesus was tempted and tested repeatedly. All of us are tested, folks, aren't we? It might be temptation is really small, like a benign box of Valentine chocolates. Not supposed to eat those on the Atkins diet, but sometimes it's difficult. Maybe the temptation takes on another more horrendous viewpoint. Maybe it's an illicit sexual relationship that starts harmlessly but grows into something far greater and far more evil. Maybe the temptation is a white lie, or perhaps it's just a little cheating on your income tax. Or perhaps it's like we are find in the news today that people are willing to pay large sums of money under the table just so they can get their sons and daughters in a specific school or a specific program. We are all tempted, folks. We are all tested. And how we respond to that test defines us as followers of Jesus Christ. It defines us as servants of the living Lord. And so as I wrap up the question this morning is, what does this mean to us? And I think what it means is that the ultimate temptation of Jesus Christ was that he could have foregone the cross and still ended up with the crown. That's the same temptation we face today. We want power with no responsibility. We want risk with no danger. We want victory with no commitment. You know, some Christians will tell you, hey, this Christian life, this is a beautiful life. Well, I think today's scripture in the Gospel of Luke really tells us that life is a struggle. Life is a wilderness experience, and you most assuredly will be tempted and tested. But Jesus' experience means that we can resist We can focus and make our primary allegiance to God. We can serve Him alone. And we can refuse, simply refuse to take the easy way in our life. It's our choice. It's your choice. And for those times that you're in the wilderness trying to find your way through and temptation comes into your life and offers you the wrong answer or the wrong choice or the wrong use of power, or the wrong kind of popularity, or the wrong type of relationship or partnership, then you remember that Christ was tempted as well. He did not turn the stones into bread. 
Instead, he fed himself off the Word of God. He did not seek the approval of men, but sought instead the Father's approval. He did not take the easy way out, but he chose the Father's plan, including death. I suppose there's a twist to all of this, really, if you think about it. If you really think about it. If Jesus had saved himself, he would not have been able to save you and me. If Jesus had saved himself, he would have been unable to be the sinless lamb of God and save you and me. He decided to take the cross instead of the crown. And because of that, we owe him our very lives. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me, please?